Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined by my co-hosts, Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello. And senior associate editor Ariel Pardes. Hello, and later in the show, we're going to have our colleague Megan Multaney on. She's a writer on our science desk, and we are going to talk about gene sequencing. Specifically, she's going to tell us about how some people are going to extremes to protect their personal identities when getting their DNA sequenced using tools like ProtonMail, VPNs, and crypto wallets. But the best part is Megan's going to tell us how we can use these tools for privacy even if you aren't getting your DNA decoded. But first, we actually do have a lot of gadget news on the Gadget Lab this week because it is tech's silly season, after all. And we've emerged from the piles and piles of hardware on our desks just to tell you about the news this week. So let's get to it. All right, I'll go first. Uh, You may remember at the tail end of last year's silly season, it was also uh, after a bonanza of privacy scandals for Facebook. The company decided for some reason that it would be a good idea to pitch users on putting a Facebook-controlled video camera in their homes. The Facebook portal came out at the end of 2018, and although the video chat devices were roundly panned by the press, Facebook did sell enough of them to warrant a sequel, or at least we believe they sold enough of them to warrant a sequel. Either way, there is a sequel. This week, we got to see the new Facebook portal lineup. Like last year, There are two portals with screens, a big one and a small one. They both have microphones and the video cameras have some cool AI capabilities. But now there's also a third portal, a device with a camera and a microphone that sits on top of your TV and turns your big screen into a massive video chat window. All the new portals let you chat with your WhatsApp friends in addition to your Facebook friends this year. And they have Alexa capability just like the last ones. While the idea of letting Facebook plant a camera and a microphone in your home may seem like a hard no for most people, myself included, these devices do have an audience. So what is the audience? (laughs) Who's buying these things? Our colleague Tom Simonite wrote about this and wrote that Facebook has something like less than 4% of the total smart speaker market. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing this and saying, wow, that much? Yeah. Uh, Because we don't know anybody in the wild who has one of these Facebook portals. Part of me thinks that Facebook is using the portal as a means of dog fooding other new features that they're eventually going to roll out to different platforms. Maybe that's something that's going to roll out in the mobile app, or maybe it's something that's even more futuristic like smart glasses. But Andrew Bosworth, who's one of the executives who runs this team and who sometimes tweets things and shares a little bit about what they're working on, has indicated in recent days that you know they specifically created this Facebook research unit to work on cool things for AR and VR, and Portal happens to be a part of that. So I think uh, they could be using it as um, you know grounds for testing out things and seeing what the reaction is. But then I also have this other theory that is completely un- founded that it's just like Facebook must know that children and teenagers right now are like, what's Facebook? Like they're not using it or audit. <laughs> so maybe the portal is just a way to stick it in your home and then have like a very obvious product on the counter that teaches your child what Facebook is. It does have stuff built in, especially for kids. Like it has an AR filter that, um, you know, puts like bunny ears on people when they're talking to you. There's also a, a story time feature. I think that's what the feature is called, where you like are as as the person who is video chatting, you are inside of sort of a uh, an AR diorama and the story plays out around your face as you're reading it. It's very bizarre, but also, you know, the audience, I think, is like 
families that live mm-hmm. across the world from one another and grandma and grandpa want to see the baby. So this is something that I think Facebook is sort of indoctrinating young children into their world with. Yay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Good for them. Question mark. Good for them. All right. Let's move on to devices that billions of people use. Shall we? Mm. All right. Earlier this week, all of the major publications, including our own, ran reviews of the new iPhone 11 and iPhone 11 Pros, which we talked all about on last week's show. But if you're not planning on spending $1,000 or more on a fancy new phone, then you'll be happy to hear that iOS 13 dropped yesterday. This is the big operating system update to iPhones that should make even your aging phones feel newer and faster. It runs on iPhones 6S or later, and then an iPad-specific version will come early next week. However, kids, you might want to wait until next week to install this new software on your phone because it's been a really, really buggy season for iPhone software. Apple usually puts out beta versions right after WWDC in June, which is a good opportunity for app developers and people who just like living on the edge to play around with the software. And then they sent in their feedback. But in this case, the early bugs were actually kind of bad. Some developers noted an iCloud bug that wiped data or entire projects from their accounts. Members of the low vision and blind community noted problems with the virtual braille keyboard and the new dark mode. I personally experienced some bugs or just some unfriendly UI changes, but they were not nearly as critical as the ones that I just mentioned. Now, Apple says some of these will be fixed with iOS 13.1, which comes out on Tuesday, the 24th. Note this is, they've bumped this up. It was supposed to be the 30th, now it's happening on the 24th. So it's probably a good idea just to wait until then, until Tuesday, the 24th. 13.1 to upgrade your old iPhone. Are either of you going to update today? Well, not after what you okay, just good, said. Good. Um, <laughs> Lauren, is it typical for new software to have this many bugs or is there something anomalous with iOS 13? It is not unusual for new software to have bugs and particularly when it's in the beta phase. Keep in mind that all of the releases and there were nearly two dozen releases between June and now were still beta. They were developer beta or they were public beta. And that's the point, right? Let's work out all of the bugs. In the past, Apple's had issues where beta versions of their software have completely bricked iPhones. That happened to me a long time ago. Um, So, you know, this is not totally unheard of, but the developers I spoke to said that um, this was a particularly kind of harrowing software rollout. And even, you know, Thursday morning when the release was, was, you know, official, like 13's out, everybody go download it. Apple just suddenly changed the date for 13.1 to Tuesday instead of the 30th. And people were like, what? Like, it just seems like it's been a little bit scattered this year. And um, some of the bugs have been particularly bad. Like the iCloud bug was, was by all accounts, um, not great. But dark mode works. Well, dark mode works for me, um, but I'm not a member of the low vision community and cannot even begin to understand what folks in that community may be experiencing if they're having trouble seeing their phone. Mm. So that's another thing to keep in mind, too. The The promise of Apple products is that they're supposed to be, you know, it just works. and They have this amazing ease of use. But when they render some of your products nearly unusable, then they're not upholding that promise. So... With that in mind, (laughs) shall we move on? Sure. I have some news from Amazon this week. 
Amazon, the everything store, made a move to protect customer privacy when it began cracking down on some of the third-party apps used by Amazon sellers. So to zoom out just a little bit, Amazon's marketplace includes products that are sold by Amazon, but it also includes lots of products that are sold by other sellers from around the world. So sometimes you're buying something from the company in Seattle, sometimes you're buying something from a company in the Philippines that is selling on Amazon. So these sellers use all kinds of tools to manage their businesses. And there's this cottage industry of specialized business apps that sprung up around it. So those apps do things like uh, integrate with Amazon to bring in customer names, email, delivery addresses, and so on, and make it easier for these sellers to do things like populate shipping labels or whatever else you need to do to run your business. Now, the problem is some of these third-party apps are in violation of Amazon's privacy policies. And as of this week, it's starting to crack down on those apps, in particular, the ones that are using Amazon's customer information for purposes other than just tax and shipping. So you're not allowed to use that information to, for example, advertise to someone, which is something that a lot of sellers find really valuable and have asked developers of these third-party apps to give them the opportunity to do. And Amazon saying, no way, you will be booted from Amazon's app marketplace. So that's been really frustrating to some Amazon sellers. Our colleague Louise Matsikas had a story on this. Um, but the flip side is that it's pretty nice for customers. If you're a person who's buying lots of things on Amazon, um, it's great that the company is taking some steps to try and protect your information. Uh, it's also a nice move for the company in a year when privacy seems to be the big buzzword. And it also shows how Amazon is sort of throwing its weight around as it tries to take some control of this super messy, complicated ecosystem that it's built uh, with this marketplace that includes so many people around the world. Yeah, you know, and there's sort of been this broader move among Amazon to clean up uh, some of the, the the garbage on its network. Like they were, um, they introduced a thing called uh, the top brand badge earlier this year to help consumers sort of find the products that were the ones that they were actually looking for instead of the ones that were um, being put in front of them by people who were trying to game the, uh, the search engine algorithms. Uh, also this week, they announced that they're going to buy a bunch of uh, electric delivery vehicles, uh, which was a response to uh, pressure from the people who work at Amazon uh, because the company has basically done nothing to address the concerns that it's harming the environment. Uh, so, you know, it seems like hygiene is on the mind just as much as privacy here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have Megan Multaney on the show to tell us all about the latest things happening in the world of DNA sequencing. Megan Multaney is a staff writer at Wired, covering the intersection of science, health, and technology. And Megan is here in the studio today to tell us whether it's possible to decouple our genomic data from personal information the stuff that tech companies and biotech companies are more than happy to scoop up from us. If you've ever wanted to get your DNA sequenced but have hesitated because of privacy concerns, you're going to want to hear this. Megan, thanks for joining us on The Gadget Lab. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to kick off with a basic question. If you can tell us first what it means exactly to get your DNA or your genome sequenced, what kinds of information can be learned from this and from the process? 
Sure. So a genome refers to the entirety of your DNA. So that's about six billion base pairs. And a base pair is just the series of letters. So there's, if you think about your DNA as a genetic code, there's four letters, A, T, C, G. And if you unravel all of your DNA and you were to pull it out into a single string, it'd be six billion, well, be three billion letters long, and then it's paired. So six billion total. Uh, So getting your genome sequenced is having that entire genetic code uh, unraveled. And part of that process is comparing that code to a bunch of other people's DNA, to their genomes, and telling, using that to tell you what's going on with your DNA. So do you have a variation of a gene that makes you more at a higher risk for heart disease? Or is your grandma from Estonia? Those sorts of things. Um, so that's, that's what it means to be, to be fully sequenced. This, uh, the first human genome sequence, of course, was made in 2000. It was a big deal. It cost a lot of money. Uh, it has become commercially available for clinics and hospitals and doctors in the intervening two decades, but it's really only become available uh, at a price point that con- consumers can actually afford uh, in the last five years. And what's the difference between that consumer DNA sequencing and the more traditional clinical or, or medical sequencing? It's really a matter of accuracy. So what you can afford as a consumer is something that's called a low-pass genome. And basically what it means is they assemble those 6 billion letters and they just do a quick check to make sure that they're actually right about lining up all those letters and making sure they're the right ones. Um, It's kind of like using a spell checker and you only use it like one time, so you're still going to have a bunch of mistakes. A clinical grade sequence is where you run a spell checker on it like 30 times at least, 30 to 50. Um, That's called 30x or 50x coverage. That basically gives you a a high confidence that the sequence that uh, is associated with your genome is actually what's in there. How much does it cost for a consumer to get this done? And how many people have taken advantage of this? Yeah, so a consumer sequence, like a low, what's called a low-pass sequence, is available right now for around $1,000. Our best estimates is that close to... A million people have all over the world have had their genome sequenced, but we think that that has that includes people who've had it done clinically. So if they're part of like a research study, if a hospital wanted to know what was in your uh, genome and had it sequenced, um, so we, we we think it's we think it's somewhere between like five hundred thousand and a million people have taken advantage of this. So that seems like a relatively small sample of people to compare your data against to see what you're prone to. No, or are there other data sets that are being referenced here? Yeah, so there's um, there's a bunch of projects around the world to collect people's genomes. So there's a big one in the UK, there's a big one in China, there's one called the Thousand Genomes Projects uh, here, kind of uh, based in the US, although sampling all over the world. So there are there are kind of like medical research um, efforts that are collecting genomes that are serving as kind of that reference database to then comp- for companies to compare uh, your genome. Say if you go to a company and pay $1,000, they're able to compare to those public data sets. So they have more data to work with. But it is a small fraction compared to the number of people who've done things like 23andMe and Ancestry. We think that's about 26 million people who've done that. Um, that was an estimate that came out last year on MIT Tech Review. It may be closer to 30 million um, by now. And that's a slightly different technology that instead of uh, looking at all six billion pairs of your whole genome, it takes little snapshots of about 100,000 places. And it says, you know, these are genes where we think we know something interesting is happening. We'll go in and take a little picture of that and we'll give you that information. What what sorts of things are they targeting? 
with those couple hundred thousand did you say hundred thousand yeah a couple hundred thousand so it's exactly what you'd get back in a 23andme or an ancestry result so with ancestry it might be a particular piece of dna that uh we can trace back to like a little corner of ireland um because a lot of people only uh, slept with people <laughs> from that area for a long time, and so those genes are highly conserved. Um, or it might be um, genes that we know are r- affiliated or associated with certain um, uh, diseases. So you might have something like, there's a gene called ApoE4, and if you have a certain uh, variant of this, you have a higher likelihood of having uh, Alzheimer's. So these are sorts of things that scientists have figured out by studying um, people who have Alzheimer's and people who are healthy, comparing them, seeing which genes show up in the folks with Alzheimer's. Uh, And so those are the sorts of things that can get returned uh, in those kinds of tests. So you reference data sets existing all over the world. But in terms of who can actually pay for this $1,000 test and get it done, does it vary by market? Like, is it something that folks outside of the U.S. can do? Is it happening all over? As um, far as I know, the biggest market outside of the U.S. is China, but um, there's not a big commercial market there uh, or a consumer market. So there are a lot of sequencing efforts um, by scientists and hospitals that are supported by the Chinese government. There's a lot. There's a big push to do genetic sequencing as part of uh, just regular healthcare, but there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of places outside the U.S. where consumers are really like hankering to have their DNA, their full genome sequence. Like it is right now in the U.S., there are only a few companies that offer it. And because of full genome sequences, a thousand dollar investment as opposed to, you know, a hundred dollars, something like a 23andMe kit. uh, There aren't a lot of people who are right now seeing the value in getting a genome versus doing um, kind of this, this more snapshot version. So there's a chicken and an egg problem with genomics right now where you need really large data sets to be able to suss out what's going on at all 6 billion spots in the genome. Um, right now, we the things that we already know, you can test for with a kit like 23andMe. The advantage of doing a genome is that as scientists do more and more research, get more and more DNA, and figure out kind of decode more and more of the genome, you'll be able to understand that without having to go back and retest. But right now, the value to consumers is about the same. So one of the things that always comes up when you talk about consumer DNA sequencing is privacy. And I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons not everybody gets these done is concerns about privacy, right? You're, you're learning a lot of cool information, but in exchange, you're giving up uh, data that goes far beyond just, you know, your email address. Uh, it's, it's information about your body. Um, you recently wrote for Wired about a startup that's trying to think about this differently. And I, I want to get into that. But first, like, how valid are those concerns from consumers who say, I don't want to spit in a tube and send it to 23andMe because I don't know what's going to happen to that data? I think the concerns are valid at this particular moment, in part because of the way genetic information is regulated in this country. There, The laws that have been put out, in particular a law called GINA, protect genetic information, but only from certain entities. So your employer can't discriminate against you because you have a genetic predisposition to diabetes, but it doesn't prevent you, doesn't prevent like a life insurance company from discriminating against you. It doesn't prevent a school from saying, 
we're going to genetically test everyone to see if folks have autism and we don't want them in this class. Like there just are not legal protections. So in that sense, I think there there are some valid concerns. The other thing that has happened is there have been some very high profile examples of data being used in ways that people didn't intend for it to be used. So in law enforcement in the last year and a half, we've seen that these there have been a number of public databases where people have gotten their DNA um, tested through 23andMe or Ancestry. They've uploaded it to a public database because they're trying to find relatives. They're trying to find out, like, who did my grandma, you know, sleep with in Sweden so that I have the current, you know, makeup that I have. Um, and police have been able to access those databases to take DNA they find at crime scenes and basically re-identify anonymous DNA by linking it back through your relatives, right? Because you share your DNA with almost everyone who you're related to, to some degree. So between that and then also the revelation that companies like 23andMe have struck really lucrative deals with pharmaceutical companies, and so data is being shared also outside of the company itself. Um, All of those things are kind of starting to bring to the forefront the idea that even though these companies say you own your DNA and you can, you know, get claw it back at any time, that's really not true in practice. And it's actually much, much harder once you've actually had it genotyped or sequenced um, and it's living on someone else's server. There's very you have very little control over where it goes next. So a startup called Nebula is trying to address some of these concerns using blockchain. And we're going to talk about that right after a quick break. So Megan, this startup Nebula has some ideas for ways to make uh, your DNA more anonymous, to make the information you're uploading more secure. Some of that has to do with blockchain. Sort of explain to us what the idea is here. Sure. So the blockchain element actually has to do with giving you control over who sees your data. So right now, if you go to someone like 23andMe and they test your DNA and they have some of your, you know, DNA file on you on their server and they want to de-identify it and aggregate it with a bunch of other customers' DNA and sell it to a pharma company or sell access to a pharma company to be able to, to use that, you don't have any control over who, which pharma company or advertising company, say, they sell it to. Um, so the difference here with blockchain is that the, the, the consumer is making a decision and they're saying either I want no one else to see my data besides me, I want Nebula to share my data with anyone, uh, whoever wants it, or I kind of an in-between option and anyone who wants to look at my genome, I want to be able to ha- kind of a one-off um, instance be able to say yes or no. And that decision is stored in this public ledger. And so if anyone wants to ask Nebula to access your data and to pull it into like a big pool of de-identified genomes, um, basically a bunch of people have to all agree that, that that they can see that you have made that decision. So it's kind of a way to use this trustless system to ensure that whatever you decide for your data is the thing that happens. So that's kind of the blockchain element. What they're introducing today is what they're calling anonymous sequencing. And really what it is, is they're just saying our platform, our blockchain platform is open for business with anyone who wants to use a cryptocurrency or 
other kinds of payment that aren't necessarily tied to your name and an address and an email address, so like a pre-loaded credit card um, or something else that doesn't have kind of personal identifying information on it. So in addition to blockchain and cryptocurrencies, you also mentioned in your story that some folks are going to great lengths to use things like ProtonMail, which is a highly encrypted mail service, or um, even using VPNs before they log onto the internet to process these transactions. I mean, do you see this really being a thing that people should be doing when they go to you know, pay for one of these DNA sequencing services? I think increasingly it is, and I think increasingly like wired readers are <laughs> folks who are doing that. Um, so what I think Nebula is trying to do here is signal to people who are worried about privacy and taking these kinds of measures anyways and in their life um, and saying if the thing that was stopping you from getting your genome sequenced was concerns over these privacy like we get it and we're here for you and we are willing and ready to accept anonymous payments and you can you know, you can give us a P.O. box and we will send you a kit there and we don't need to know where you live and we don't need to know what your real, you know, email address is to set up an account here. Not your real email address, but a, pers a personal uh, email address that's identified with your, associated with your name. Um, and what they're basically saying is like, you don't have to be buying a DNA test to be taking these kinds of measures. Um, there are good reasons why you wouldn't necessarily want uh, all of everything you buy on the internet to be sent to your home <laughs> or sent to your, or have the receipt for that uh, sent to your personal email address. And so I think what they're saying is privacy is the word of the moment. It's only going to become more so. And, uh, and they're anticipating that kind of the next wave of consumers who are interested in genome sequencing as the costs continue to, to fall. If the thing that is preventing them, that is the stumbling block, is privacy, like it doesn't have to be. Megan, are there other companies or firms that are taking a similar approach to Nebula's? And also, we should mention that in your story, you write that one of Nebula's co-founders was associated with Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted and now deceased sex offender. And so I'm just curious for folks who might be interested in other options, either because of that or because they just want to know if others are taking a more serious approach to privacy. There are definitely a kind of a host of other companies that are using the blockchain to solve some of these privacy issues. Um, and as far as I know, none of none of the other ones are saying that they're using they have like an anonymous service um, at this point. But it's also worth mentioning that like at this present moment, the idea of anonymous sequencing, whether it's from Nebula or from one of these other blockchain-based startups, is a little bit gimmicky just because of the fact that DNA itself is a personally identifying substance, right? Like, I have a DNA that's completely unique from yours, that's completely unique from Ariel's, that's completely unique from Mike's. So that that's not the case under U.S. law, it is not seen as a, it's not uh, regulated as a personally identifier as in the same way that like a name or an email address is, but just by laws of biology, it is. So there's kind of a next step to get to like actual secure anonymous um, genome sequencing that Nebula has hinted at is coming next year. It's not currently available today if you go and sign up for it. So I would actually say if like you are really concerned about security and privacy, I might wait until they come out with that next iteration. Well, Megan, thanks for coming on the show and breaking down genome on the blockchain for us. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's greatly appreciated. We'll have you back again soon. Thanks, Mike. 
Megan, you're still here. Are you going to join us for recommendations? I can give it a shot. Nice. Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation this week comes with a caveat that it is disturbing content. In fact, there is a viewer discretion advisory when you start to watch it, but it's a series called Unbelievable on Netflix. It is a miniseries that is based on a true story about a series of rapes and the unfolding investigation that happened afterwards. And um, so, you know, there's there are scenes of violent sexual assault. And I imagine for some people it would be very difficult to watch, but it's really well done. And it's an important story, I think, about the ways in which assault victims are treated in the aftermath of these events. And you really see the dichotomy in, um, in how some of the characters, which are based on real people, um, react to some of the victims. So there are some detectives who are understanding and ask the right questions and um, are really thorough in their investigations. And there are others who are more dismissive of the victims and even in some cases convincing them that they are lying. And uh, it's really, like I said, worth watching if you can, um, if you can stomach the subject matter. So to piggyback on that, if you're into dark stuff, uh, my recommendation this week would be for a podcast called In the Dark, which is uh, a true crime kind of investigative series. There are two seasons out now. I just finished the first one. It was about the most famous crime to ever happen in the state of Minnesota, which was a child abduction case. From a place we call St. The search for Jacob was one of the largest searches for any missing person in the history of the United States. In an extraordinary sweep for clues, more than 100 National Guardsmen scoured the countryside. They were joined by Army... This has been the largest manhunt in the history of Minnesota, and it is not going to stop. The reporters are just incredibly talented and so tenacious, and they go through thousands of pages of case reports and interview hundreds of people to go back and see exactly how this county sheriff's office kind of messed up this investigation and why it took so long to figure out who did it. I just finished it. It blew my mind. I just started season two where she moves to Mississippi for the last year to investigate um, a case where a man has been tried and convicted six times for the uh, quadruple homicide, and he's still currently on death row. And it is, it's creepy. It's really excellent. Uh, well, I guess I should provide some levity to all of this uh, <laughs> this crime and <laughs> terrible stuff that happens in the world. Um, my, my podcast that I'm recommending, and it is a podcast, is delightful. It is called Everything is Alive, and it's from Radiotopia uh, and PRX. It's been around for a little while. I think the second season just finished. Um, I just got into it a couple weeks ago when a friend recommended it to me, but I've listened to six or seven episodes and it's just amazing. They're half an hour each. It's an unscripted interview show where the host interviews an inanimate object. So the person on the other end of the conversation is an actor participating in an unscripted interview about what their life is like as an inanimate object. So one episode is about um, a can of like store brand cola. My name is Lewis and I am a can of go-to cola. That's a store brand. Mm -hmm. Go-to, G-O-2 cola. So so it's similar to Coca-Cola. Similar. People call it a knockoff. I've been called the best of the worst. You know, if uh, you wanted to get my honest opinion, I believe in a blind taste test. Your average person wouldn't be able to tell the difference between me and a can of regular Coca-Cola. But yeah, uh, bottom shelf. We can describe it comfortably as bottom shelf. I'm at peace with that. Literally on the... Most of the time, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
Another episode is uh, an interview with a pillow. Um, another episode is an interview with a lamp post. It's really just amazing because, I mean, it sounds deeply weird and it is deeply weird, but it's also entertaining because these people are really good improv actors and they basically give a personality and like a whole secret unseen life to these everyday objects. And it's filled with emotion. Um, it's also filled with facts. Like they they ask uh, the interviewer asks questions that uh, get the person talking about like some trivia about them, like the the cola one is really good because the guy talks about the uh, the history of of cola and like its marketing in the U.S. and you go down this weird road into like the early 1900s. It's very bizarre uh, and half an hour per episode no duds so far which is kind of amazing i think they did a really good job picking people so everything is alive definitely subscribe that sounds amazing (laughs) sounds like something that anyone who watched the brave little toaster obsessively as a kid would be (laughs) (laughs) oh that's amazing um i would like to recommend a book uh, it is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. This came out a couple months ago, maybe longer, and it's been sort of sitting on my nightstand for a long time, and I finally got around to reading it. It is a sort of memoir of a therapist, and it talks about her experiences with patients, but also her experience in therapy, going through her own life crisis. If you've ever been curious about what's going on on the other side of the couch. I highly recommend it. It's funny, it's poignant, it's really insightful, um, and just quite well written as well. It's a super easy read and uh, something unlike any other book I've read before. Uh, isn't sort of the, uh, the the psychology and psychiatry world undergoing a bit of a, a renaissance right now? Like there are other pieces of media about this right now too. There's like a show on Showtime. There's uh, Esther Perel. Oh my God. Esther Perel's podcast, which is not new. This is mm-hmm. this is ongoing, but not new, is incredible. Uh, I, I would also recommend that if you're interested in understanding what's going on in a therapist said um, her podcast which is called Where Should We Begin, gives you little clips from her real couples therapy sessions. Juicy. <laughs> All right. Well, great recommendations, everybody. Uh, Megan, thanks again for joining us this week and for sticking around for the last segment. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, how can people find you on the Twitter? Uh, find me on the Twitter at Megan Molteni, all one word, M-E-G-A-N-M-O-L-T-E-N-I. And Lauren, you are? At Lauren Good with an E at the end. Ariel, you are? At Part Esoteric. I am at Snack Fight. And of course, you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the main hotline uh, for our section of Wired. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. And of course, it also helps other people who might enjoy the show find the show. And we will be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life. 
or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.